0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. In 1776, the American colonies declared their independence from England. However, ever since, the two countries' histories and cultures have remained intertwined. We share the same language, watch the same movies and listen to the same music. Some even say that our politics mirror each other. And with the rise of the woke movement in America, there are fears Britain is heading down the same path. To talk to me about the relationship between the two countries, I am joined by the Sunday Telegraph columnist and British-American Janet Daly. I started by asking whether British politics is downstream from America's.
1: Uh, Not directly, no. It can't be, because the political culture, the national culture is so very different. I think because, as everybody always says, we speak the same language, we think that we're brethren politically and we're not. I mean, America is a nation of displaced people, people who everyone comes from somewhere else except the indigenous population who are now a very small minority. My family arrived at Ellis Island in 1905. My father didn't speak English until he went to school. Almost everybody I knew when I was a child had at least one grandparent who didn't speak English. There's a sense of dislocation, of dispossession, of not really knowing where home is. I mean, you see this even in the popular culture in America. Everybody's trying to get home, but nobody knows where home is anymore. And when I first came to Britain and settled here, I was absolutely startled by the old european tradition of people whose families lived in the same region sometimes in the same town or the same village for 10 generations there's nothing like that stability in america and as a result there's a kind of neurosisism a national neurosisism a sort of existential anxiety that's on the one hand nostalgia for the old roots that's why you get these peculiar phenomenon, the Irish-American phenomenon, people who've never set foot in Ireland but who consider themselves to be Irish, and it's nothing like what the Irish are now. Um, and similarly with the Italians as well. And the nostalgia clinging to the old nationalities, but at the same time knowing that you have no real understanding of those cultures, no real contact with them. I remember there's a, a mu- Ellis Island has now been turned into a museum of immigration, of migration, the great wave of migration at the early 20th century. And I remember going around it and there, of course there were loads of school parties going around for obvious reasons. And I, I remember hearing a party of school kids who were obviously Italian, Italian-American, and they were talking about where, they fa- where their families had come from. And they didn't just know the region, you know, Sicily or uh, Calabria, they knew the village that their families had come from and yet they had no contact with those that society now so it's a very peculiar mentality the american mentality and that feeds directly into the politics and the reason that there is this tendency toward hysteria you know it goes to extremes of mccarthyism and then left wing politics and this these terrible bitter divisions is because of that anxiety, that lack of rootedness. And that is something I think that is probably ineradicable in America. And it's nothing, nothing like, particularly British society, but even most old European societies.
0: And one of those famous Irish Americans is currently the yes. President of the United States. Yep. And just sticking on this issue of politics being downstream from America and Britain, can Keir Starmer take any solace in the fact that Joe Biden was able to beat Donald Trump in that election in 2020?
1: No completely irrelevant. It's got nothing to do with anything. I mean, Joe Biden was a kind of consensus candidate for the Democrats because they had to have somebody to beat Donald Trump. And they had to have somebody who was intensely likable. And not so much anymore. Joe Biden's kind of losing his likability. But at the time, he was regarded as being the nicest man in American political life. I can remember a very, you know, quite right-wing Republican saying to me that Joe Biden was so dumb that if you'd, you'd have to water him. Uh, but he's he's very, very obviously, visibly nice. And that was such an antidote, antidote to Donald Trump. And Donald Trump found it very difficult to deal with. It kind of overwhelmed the American psyche that uh, you could get this gentle, kind, tolerant man instead of this Demagogue and this sort of Mussolini-like figure, uh, but it had nothing whatever to do. I mean, the, 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 his appealing to his Irishness is significant because there is a big Irish vote in America, or what considers itself to be Irish. It isn't really Irish. Most of those people have never visited Ireland and would be shocked to see what it's like today. Dublin is a very, very sophisticated city, and uh, is nothing like the island of their imaginations. But he, every politician who has any feasibly you know a possible connection with Ireland plays it up even presidents who presidential candidates who really are not recognizably Irish in any sense manage to find Irish ancestors and go visit Ireland in a kind of sentimental journey uh, because it appeals to the Irish vote so he made use of it but it's uh, it's neither here nor there really in terms of the reality of American political life
0: and this issue of Ireland is interesting because it links in with the so-called special relationship between mm. Boris Johnson and Joe Biden. Joe Biden famously compared Boris Johnson to uh, Donald Trump, the previous American president. Is there any comparison to be made there? And we'll get on to this issue of Ireland in a bit. Uh,
1: no. <laughs> I mean, Boris, I know Boris. I mean, he was my colleague for 20 years. He is absolutely nothing like Donald Trump. And I did think, I mean, it, there was a reason why... The Johnson people allowed that to be perpetuated to some extent on the American side because they wanted a trade deal and they thought Trump would deliver for them. Uh, But it's absolutely absurd, I mean, whatever his failings and faults, Boris is a very intelligent Wissy classics graduate, you know. Uh, Donald Trump is an ignoramus uh, and uh, who doesn't even understand the constitution of his own country. The, the comparison was absurd. Uh, and also, Donald Trump was a nativist, you know, sort of, and, and Boris is not. There's a a complete, it's unrecognizable, the, 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 the attempt to superimpose the American political culture in any way, whether it's Trump and and Boris or any of the other comparisons that are made, it, it is quite absurd.
0: In terms of Boris Johnson and Joe Biden's relationship, are they political soulmates? And you can look to COP26. They're both kind of climate change. You know, this, this is the biggest issue for them. Uh, yeah. they, they both, <laughs> uh, you know, support uh, this kind of liberal world order. They both, uh, they've signed this recent deal, the AUKUS deal with submarines. Are they, uh, are they
1: soulmates? On that issue, AUKUS, yes because that goes way beyond Biden and and Boris. That is the Anglosphere. That is the Five Eyes Intelligence Network. That is the, the English-speaking nations, which certainly are sort of liberal, uh, that, that they are part of the liberal order and the, the the rule of law, the liberal rule of law. That's absolutely consistent, but it's not to do with Biden and Boris, I think any British prime minister and any American president, would ex- maybe except perhaps Donald Trump, uh, would have gone for that deal. Uh, That's that absolutely sound. Well,
0: I slightly disagree with you there. And, you, and I'm glad you mentioned Donald Trump because he had this more nationalistic view, mm-hmm. America first and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And Boris Johnson and Joe Biden, I would argue, are both part of this kind of liberal globalist world kind yes. of order, right? And yes. that They're from that class of politicians, so in that sense, I think they are so much, and that, there is not oh, ne- yes. that's yes. not necessarily inevitable in an American president or British no, prime No, that's Minister. true,
1: that's true. I mean, there's, there's, a, lot, there's, there's a long tradition of isolationism in, in American politics, but the idea of maintaining the liberal world order, that is pretty basic. Because if you remember, the, the whole premise of the American Constitution is that the rights that they are fighting for, the rights the Declaration of Independence was fighting for, are considered to be universal human rights. Uh, America isn't supposed to be just a, a get out for poor refugees who want to come and make a fortune. It's not supposed to be just a bolt hole where you go if you're being persecuted. It's there as a model to the world of democratic values and human rights. And so the idea that America propagates and stands for, the universality of human rights. That's very, very basic. And the presidents who have deviated from that, Donald Trump and and earlier isolationists, have not succeeded in wiping out that basic idea. America stands for something that is to do with, as we were saying, the liberal world order, the law-governed world order, and tolerance, and opportunity and equality and all those things that are supposed to be built into the American Constitution. So to that extent, Biden and Boris, yes, they are bedfellows. They are in league in the same way, but it's something that goes way back much further than them. It isn't a personal thing for them. They are simply the embodiment of what has long been the established sort of political, shared political culture, but that's of the whole Anglosphere really. Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the whole, that particular kind of liberalism and rights culture is basic to the Anglosphere. Whereas there's been, a, you know, not so much uh, on the continent, there's been a lot more deviation. France is supposed to stand for it too with its 18th century revolution, but it hasn't always worked out that way.
0: I would say particularly in America and to a certain extent in Britain, and in the Western world, there has been a backlash against globalization, there has been a backlash mm. against this liberal world order because millions of people have felt that they've been left behind, yeah. their wages have been stagnating, and they've been going to Donald Trump, they've been voting for Brexit because they're unhappy with this exact thing you're talking about.
1: I think Brexit don't don't make a parallel between Brexit and what happened with Trump. Two different very very different things. The the Trump Appeal to the Rust Belt and the left behind, the great left behind cohort of Americans. That was a very, very specific thing about a certain kind of industrialization uh, that had collapsed. And the poverty in the Rust Belt in America is astonishing. I mean, to people who grew up in my generation, it used to be the case that Detroit car workers, you know, uh, drove cars as expensive as most sort of suburban New Yorkers or Californians. The collapse of those industries, the steel industry, mined the car industry uh, has been catastrophic in America. And because Americans are, have, have got this very strong Calvinist instinct about self-improvement, self-advancement, you should be better off than your parents' generation. This was the first generation of Americans who were worse off than their parents had been. So that, that had a tumultuous effect. And Americans do not accept poverty in the way that a lot of Europeans do. And the the kind of rebellion here, the Red Wall. Constituencies, that we all talk about the fact that all these labor voters were deeply disenchanted and were felt that they had been left behind by whatever economic miracle had taken place since the 80s. That was very different. For one thing, those were areas of the country that were had a a hereditary memory of being poor and disadvantaged, and it, there was a spurt of hope and optimism uh, that made it feel as if, you know, when the, when the steel industries, when coal mining, when those industries in the Rust Belt, not the Rust Belt, sorry, the Red Wall constituencies were thriving, there was a sense, even though you might not be wealthy, you were earning your living, you were making your own way, you were self-sufficient, you had dignity and the dignity of your, your work. That collapsed and the rest of the country very visibly got richer. The southeast, particularly London, in the southeast, and some parts of the Midlands. So it was, uh, there was a particular cruelty about that, but it wasn't like what happened in America. It's really not the same thing.
0: Is there not a comparison between? the elites who caused the problem in the first place in both countries, even if the problem is different. So in other words, there was this liberal international order that pushed for globalisation, that pushed for free trade, that pushed for open borders, massive amount of mass migration in both countries, yeah. huge deindustrialization since the 1980s and longer in America. And in both countries, people were railing against the elites. And Donald Trump was an anti-elite candidate. You know, You can argue yeah. he's rich and a billionaire, all that stuff. But he spoke like the people in the Rust Belt spoke like. And, you know, there was a big comparison there. And in Britain, with Brexit, people were just being fed up with these people yeah. telling them the exact same thing for, de- for decades. Yeah. The, the, t- the, the, the Tory party and Labour seemed very, very similar yeah. on so many issues. And there was this revolt. So that's yeah. the, isn't that the, co- the comparison?
1: Yes, there is a degree of comparison. And certainly it was a rebellion against elites. But I'm, what I'm suggesting is that what the elite was doing in, in America, everybody is self-made. You know, there is no... To, and no significant inherited wealth, certainly not of the kind that you get in a European country. Um, there is you know, not only no aristocracy, but not even any tradition of hereditary advantage and privilege. And that makes it worse, oddly enough, because it's your own fault. If you haven't succeeded, if you're not earning enough to keep your family, if you've significantly dropped in prosperity from your parents' generation, it's your fault. This is a very, very strong puritanical idea in America that you make your own way. That's the whole point. That was why people went to America, because they were prepared to make their own way. That isn't true in a really class-based system like in Britain. There was bitterness in Britain, but it was, it was the kind of feeling that we are the people who've always been last on the priority list. We're the people who get left behind. Uh, the people in London and the Southeast, it's all become terribly cosmopolitan and all these foreigners are allowed to come in and they're allowed to make livings and they're getting wealthier and we're left, be- literally left behind. But that's honestly different. It's—it's it's, In a sense, I think that the, the British business. Goes back centuries. It's a revival of an old thing. What happened in America was a new thing. This was the first generation of people who literally did not have a chance to do what every American is supposed to do, which is to say, get ahead, do better than your parents, succeed, you know, not necessarily get rich, but at least get comfortably affluent. It's quite different.
0: You talk about the American dream there and, and, you know, historically, the American dream has been people coming to America and making their living. And Mm. Irish people were a huge community. And you mentioned Ireland at the beginning of the interview. Let's, talk, let's link that in with some of the disagreements between Boris Johnson and Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. So Joe Biden has put per- pressure onto Boris Johnson over the Northern Ireland protocol because, as you mentioned, he sees himself as an American-Irish, and Irish-American. Uh, the other disagreement they've had recently is over the Afghanistan withdrawal, mm-hmm. where basically Joe Biden didn't pick up the phone to Boris Johnson for 36 hours. Uh, he didn't uh, consult the Brits uh, or NATO over the decision. So do you think that there, there are some rifts there at the same time?
1: Yeah. But,
0: how significant are they
1: it's very difficult to say in the short term, it probably was significant because it was a kind of humiliation because the British had been partners in the Afghanistan and that whole sort of adventure in that region. but that I think was possibly deliberate on the part of Biden because he didn't want to be slowed down. He was determined to do what he was going to do. If he had consulted with allies like, the, like Britain, he would have to have ameliorated his decision. He would have to have mitigated the decision. And I think it was a quite conscious, I don't think he was calling the shots at all, frankly. I think this was coming from military advisors and the State Department and so on. And I think that the advice was just do it And don't talk to people until you've announced it, until you're doing it, because otherwise we won't be able to go through with it. And we have to go through with it
0: so the military leaders in America just to hold you on that point mm-hmm. uh, they claim that they advised the entire the complete opposite to that so uh, yeah
1: well but, some of them did I think but he did have a, he did have a clutch of people he never does anything. I think it was a
0: political thing rather yes. than a military oh
1: yes 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 sorry yes I didn't mean advice. military personnel I meant um, the, the the people who advise him on military matters. Yes. and he has a personal clique of people who advise him on these things and it was a deliberate it was a foreign foreign. foreign policy decision more than a military decision.
0: If you look over to America and watch CNN, and then you put on Fox News, (laughs) you can see the contrast and you can see just how divided the country seems, at least on the surface. Oh, no, it
1: goes very deep, yeah.
0: Where did this division start? And there are some people who say, look, you know, um, it was the impeachment trial of Bill Clinton or it was the 2000 election. Can you place a sort of pinpoint in in history where, where this began?
1: Oh, it began long, long before that. I mean, uh, I left America, I was part of the original 60s student revolution generation, and uh, the divisions began then. I'd say the post-war period of the 1950s in America was apart, of course, from McCarthyism. I mean, there, there have always been terribly bitter divisions in American society. And it goes back to the thing I was talking about before, about the kind of... Existential anxiety of the country, the hysteria. I mean, when you listen to the political arguments now in America, they're so hateful, and so uh, vicious, and so personal. And this is uh, uh, the, the thing that's really disorienting for a British, from a British perspective, looking at America, is that. America, there's no sense of, we were talking about the elites a moment ago. There's no sense of middle class guilt in America. You don't feel guilty because you've become successful and made money and you're affluent, even if it was your parents' money. I mean, there are, there's now a generation of people who are, you know, what are called trust fund kids, you know, who, who, whose parents are quite rich and who are allowing them not to work for a living. But that's very, very new. I mean, when I was young, even millionaires' children were expected to work. They were expected to go out and get a job, and they were bums if they didn't get a job. Everybody worked, and there was no sense of bourgeois guilt, which is so permeates British society, and it's one of the things that makes Boris's or any government in this country's approach to poverty so different. You know, as I was saying, in America, if you're poor, it's your fault, and you there the, the different the relationship between the elites in this country and the elite and and the People who are not elite, and here is, is so different from America, where everybody arrived with nothing, everybody is expected to make his own way, and that's what you came to America for, and if you didn't succeed, you're useless, you know, you're just to be dismissed. It's very hard to bridge that break of communications, that basic misunderstanding, and so much of the, the viciousness and the hatred, if you read carefully what's being said on CNN as opposed to Fox News, CNN is taking a much more European view. If you're well off and you're in a comfortable part of the country and you have a good job and you're earning a good living, you should feel guilty and responsible for the people who aren't. Fox News is taking much more what you might call a redneck position in America, which is the traditional American view, that you should make your own way, you should not depend on anybody, certainly not on the government, and you shouldn't expect anybody to treat you with particular generosity or charity just because you're poor or you're hard up or you're not qualified. Go out and get a qualification. Go out and you know, study and get a qualification so that you can get a job. And move out of your sort of hopeless neighborhood or your hopeless community and go to somewhere where the where the work is. That is the real split between the European or British attitude and the American attitude, and that's what you're seeing in CNN and the kind of what you might call the educated elite media. They're trying to behave like Europeans, and so much of the American population is still behaving like the old Americans, and that's why they're so nationalist. That's why it's America first. You know, America represents the land of opportunity still. And if you've been cheated out of your opportunities, you feel guilt, you feel on the one hand guilty, but also hugely despairing. You know, there is nobody who is going to offer you the kind of opportunity that you thought was your birthright.
0: So the real divide in America is between the European mindset and the original American dream mindset. Yeah,
1: basically, yeah.
0: Can we see that same, those same divisions? Can we see those heading to Britain, heading our way? And, you know, we look at the Brexit referendum. The point is, is that Brexit showed how divided the country really yeah. is. And you saw, yeah. uh, particularly after the referendum, a huge attempt to reverse the result by the elites. And this caused anger, a historic anger that I have, I've never seen in my life. No, but I'm quite young. No. So yeah. <laughs> maybe you can tell me.
1: Um, no, it was like nothing I've ever seen either. And I think that kind, of, but that kind of elitist arrogance on the part of the Remainer establishment, was was pretty much par for the course. What wasn't was the reaction of the people against it. And I think that it hit at a particularly opportune moment, the the Brexit, for the the what you might call the underclass or you know the the, the disadvantaged working class, because they were really having a bad time. And so the the Brexit, the argument about Europe and the argument about membership of the EU hit at precisely the moment when that class of people were particularly bitter, and felt disinherited. And so it was a it was a kind of perfect storm in that respect. But there were people supporting Brexit for all sorts of different reasons. And not all of them because they resented immigrants coming and taking their jobs. I've got no problem with immigrants. I come from an immigrant family. My support for Brexit came out of absolute commitment to the democratic principle that you should elect the people who make your laws. And there were an awful lot of people who did feel that way. And I think there was too little attention paid to that contingent of people. You know, who really felt that their institutions were being devalued, their laws were being trivialized. I mean, if you tried, a lot of American liberals who couldn't understand Brexit and thought it was all about bigotry, I actually had this argument with several of them. And I said, look, if any American presidential candidate had said that, we, that the United States should join a pan American union, in which its foreign policy would be would be determined in buenos aires and a court its the decisions of its supreme court could be overruled by judges sitting in rio de janeiro how far do you think he would get i mean he'd be vaporized no no politician in america would dream of advocating such a thing and there were a lot of people in this country who genuinely felt that here and it wasn't just about migrants or you know job opportunities
0: In terms of those divisions, though, can we see a a comparison between the globalists, the liberals in London and and big cities, the students, similar in America, this European attitude, and the people who maybe sort of the British dream people who have this kind of dignity in their community, Mm. and they've seen, uh, as you say, elites uh, forgetting them and and leaving them behind. And I think immigration, you can't ignore it—is an issue because people's Oh, sure. Societies yeah. changed in such a short, in, in the space of two decades, basically completely was revolutionised. You know. So uh, is there a comparison there between uh, America and the UK in that, ex- in that example? And also, is Britain becoming more divided like America? Could we in five years' time, 10 years' time, become the same sort of Fox News, CNN-style no. thing?
1: <laughs> no. And that, on your last point, no. The British are basically profoundly tolerant... Very humorous, very rational, very grown up. I mean, the 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 thing that always strikes me when I visit the United States now is how there is a kind of childlike quality about the irrationality of the American position. I understand it. I know where it comes from, but the uh, no. I mean, this, I mean, the, the British are probably the most reasonable people on the face of the earth. And the the kind of extreme viciousness, the bitterness of the social divides, not going to happen. Uh, that is, that is it happens in some European countries too, but America specializes in it. And it's because it's an outlet for all this kind of uh, neuroticism is the only word I can produce for it. It's, it's a sense of... Not really belonging. I mean, the sense in which America creates a kind of be- belonging, the, the patriotism, the parochialism, the, the sort of the bitterness of l- the, the local community loyalties have a strain of desperation and bitterness about them in the way that is not the case here. I mean, I, one of the things, the opposite side of the coin here, that I did find very disturbing about Britain is that this rootedness and this almost complacency, if you like, about the British character, uh, leads to passivity and I was very disturbed by the kind of defeatist acceptance of working class people and working class communities the the fact that they not only did they not have a desire to improve themselves but they actually tried to prevent their children from moving out and on you know the people i I used to teach in sort of higher education and I was shocked by the way one had to Persuade working class parents to allow their children to apply for university. I mean, that's largely gone now, or mostly gone. But there is still this resistance. You know, you're loyal to your class, you're loyal to your community, um, and that can create this terrible defeatist acceptance of a a position in society that you know you could have, you could have escaped. And that I found that very bewildering about British society. But the but that's the, the bad, the negative side of something that is in very often quite positive, which is a kind of rooted emotional stability about being who you are, which most Americans just don't have.
0: But what we are seeing is the rise of the woke movement. And I want to talk about that in quite a lot of depth because it's really interesting. In both Britain, you know, particularly in America, but I think it is spreading to the UK. There are lots of people saying we should cancel Winston Churchill because he was a racist or whatever. All these institutions, the universities, the BBC, the civil mm-hmm. service, big business, you know, they're adopting the, the same kind of language that people in America are using yeah. to describe their history, to describe their culture. And you say that we're the most tolerant, some of the most tolerant people in the world. You know, these won't People in Britain would say that's completely wrong. We yeah. have this awful history of yeah, slavery yeah, yeah. and colonialism yeah. that we should be ashamed of. We're intolerant and we're uh, steeped in, in racism as a country. So, are we kind of in that sense heading down the American path?
1: Uh, no, <laughs> um, at least only in the most superficial way. I mean, there, there is a terrible tendency for Britain to imitate what becomes fashionable in America. This was happening even in the 60s and so on. I mean, it, it, the American student rebellions and things and the civil rights movement and the anti-Vietnam War, I mean, the anti-Vietnam War movement was a good example. I mean, I was very, very active in the anti-Vietnam War movement when I was at Berkeley. And when I got here, I discovered that there were lots of students agitating to have just the same sort of demonstrations and rebellions at the LSE and this sort of thing. And we weren't fighting the Vietnam War in Britain. The only thing they could object to was the fact that Harold Wilson hadn't positively repudiated the Vietnam activities, but we never sent any soldiers to Vietnam. So I mean, Australia did, but Britain didn't. Uh, And so I thought, what are you going on about? You're not even involved. This isn't your fight. But they wanted to do it. You know, Here we'd had all these sensational sort of marches and demonstrations in America and they thought that was really cool. So they wanted to do that. And it was purely imitative and of course it petered out because there there was no foundation for it. So w- the the woke movement in America is an, another of these nervous breakdowns that America has periodically. It's a form of mccarthyism. And mccarthyism was a big deal, uh, you know, in my sort of childhood. It wasn't just what you saw those televised senate hearings. It wasn't just that. It was replicated in workplaces all over the country. People were sacked because they were thought to have dangerously left-wing views, they might be communist sympathizers. People's careers could be ruined by being described as communist sympathizers. It was an epidemic of victimization. And within a few years, McCarthy died, of course, you know, quite young, not long after that. Everybody was saying, "What was that about?" you know it was astonishing it was a witch hunt mentality and it when it died it died definitively and of course by the early 60s everybody was becoming blatantly left the young were becoming blatantly left wing they were identifying as marxists and trotskyists and there was no equivalent witch hunt there was no equivalent sort of mccarthyite because that that had just run its course and i think the woke thing is just another example of that uh, America just gets obsessed occasionally and goes after something and then it like that it 's suddenly gone it It blows itself up
0: isn 't the danger with the woke movement if you make that comparison? McCarthyism had a real enemy you know communism, communists there are some in America, but I mean there was a tangible yeah. enemy in this in the Soviet Union today the woke people 's enemy. Is America itself? It's it, it's kind yes. of turning in on itself. Well, that's so why does that make that does that not make it even more dangerous? Yes,
1: yes. It's more well, it's more neurotic. If you you well, I mean, you wouldn't remember this. But the McCarthyite period, it wasn't just about fellow travelers. It wasn't just about people who might actually be Soviet assets. It wasn't just about spying. You know, there were people, Alger Hiss, sort of people who were identified as actual sort of agents of the Soviet Union. But it was about thought control as well. It was about, you know, are you thinking the wrong thoughts? Do you have any sympathies with this kind of socialist, Expansionism. Uh, it, it, it wasn't just specifically aimed at Russia and the Soviet Union. And so it's not all that different. It, you know, it, it was in, inspect your consciousness and see whether there's anything wrong with your thoughts. Purge yourself of any tendency to go in for this, to be sympathetic to these ideas. And it's always, that. in America, it's always like that. It's always ultimately about police your thoughts. And that is so alien to the British idea. The the British imitation of it here, it may look on the face of it as if it's gaining ground, you know, in all the sort of institutions. And it is to some extent. The the way the institutions are buckling under the pressure of this is, is shameful, absolutely shameful, since it's being driven by such a small minority of people. But it's it's self-parody. It becomes immediately ridiculous, and it's possible to say that it's ridiculous. And as a result, it will, it will blow itself out pretty quickly because it's so it's beyond parody at this point. And it seems ridiculous because when you look around you at British life, it's not the way the, pe- the, the people who are creating this character are trying to present it. So, you know, the idea that this, I mean, this is, I come from a racist country, okay? This is not a racist country. I mean, the the attitudes toward ethnic minorities in this country, except in tiny pockets, ignorant pockets of, you know, crowds of drunk football supporters or something. I mean, for the most part, the, the, the racial tolerance in this country is extraordinary. It's a model to the world.
0: Do British people confuse British history and American history in that sense?
1: I hope not, uh, because they're completely different. What is being said about American history? I mean, there are people apparently now who are label, labeling Abraham Lincoln a racist, the man who abolished slavery. You know, I mean, it, it's just. Um, I mean, the, the thing is, it's ludicrous in America too. It's ridiculous, but they don't see it as ridiculous. It's ridiculous here, and we see it as ridiculous. That's the big difference.
0: To understand wokeism, I think we have to talk about American history and then we can get to sort of more contemporary stuff. And uh, for British viewers, they might not understand, particularly the younger ones, what the American dream is, what the American dream was. We've talked about that a lot in this interview. Mm -hmm. And to help people understand, I want to talk about your own family's history. You know, we talked about Russia, the Soviet Union. I think that's a really good place to start in the early 1900s. So can you talk about how your family came to America and how they succeeded?
1: Well, whether they succeeded in the first generation is debatable. My family arrived at Ellis Island in 1905, escaping from the pogroms in Russia, but that was led by a czar, not by the Communist Party. And they arrived in Boston. And like many members of ethnic communities, uh, they spoke virtually no English. And they went to their community. This is something that a lot of people don't understand about american ethnicity the reason that you know we were talking about biden and his irish roots there was no welfare system at all in in the early 20th century in fact there wasn't one really until you got to the 1930s and so if you arrived penniless you know with all your belongings in a sack on your shoulder you went to your community and if it was the Jewish community. You ended up in certain parts of Boston, the Lower East Side of New York. If you were Italian, you ended up in what was called Little Italy in Manhattan. Or, uh, you know, there, there were, but you went to your people who would help you to find work, to and so to support you, and to become your extended family. And that's one of the reasons that that kind of ethnic loyalty is still so strong in America. You know you're an Italian American or you're a, you know a German- American, because the ties among those communities became very strong. They were your only welfare support. Um, the idea was that you were, you would get no help from the government. you would get no help from anybody except your family and your community, and you would make your own way. And the result was that they were very resilient people. They were very industrious and they were absolutely determined to succeed because they had left behind, whether it was persecution or poverty or hopelessness, they had come to this country which was going to give them the opportunities to succeed. And that is so fundamental to the American mentality. It's ineradicable. It's Why what, did
0: they choose America and not Britain or France or Germany? or? Because Rome?
1: America was making the offer. I mean, you could come in, you know, that give me your tired, your poor, the Statue of Liberty, seeing this. Statue of Liberty, America was a big empty country, and it was actually soliciting mass migration. That was the whole point of it. Dispossessed people, you know, sort of people who had nothing, were invited to come. And the Ellis Island Museum, if you ever get a chance to visit it, is is an inspiration. I mean, people were. Uh, brought into this extraordinary reception hall, and queued up for hours with their kids and their relatives and They had to give the name of some contact who, somebody who was prepared to meet them and kind of take responsibility for them within the country and It was always a member of your own community or your extended family and that That was it you know you, 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 it, it was interesting actually this is a, a side point that 's worth remembering about the Ellis Island Museum. You remember there was a big row here about whether migrants should be allowed to come in if they had certain kinds of illnesses or if they had AIDS or whatever. There was a hospital at the Ellis Island at Ellis Island, uh, connected to the reception center, and if you had any communicable disease, you had to be isolated in the hospital before you were allowed to go to the country. It happened to one of my aunts when my grandparents were coming. She had measles, and they all had to wait and be isolated until she was clear of measles in, before they would be allowed in the country. And there was, there was also a rule that if you were mentally unstable, you couldn't be accepted uh, because you were likely, as they put it, you were likely to become a charge upon the state, which is very interesting. The idea is you were bringing in independent, strong, healthy people, willing to work, willing to improve themselves. That was the whole point.
0: So your family came and eventually they did make success. Well, uh, the
1: first generation weren't hugely successful, but they were one of one of rather like many Asian families here. They were absolutely determined to educate their children. I had one of those uncles who kept the shop open 7 days a week so that he could put his sons through medical school. And I feel tremendous bond with the sort of Asian shopkeepers who do the same thing here. And it wasn't this. It was so much that you were going to succeed or become wealthy, some of them did become wealthy, but you were going to work every hour that God sent. You were going to work your fingers to the bone, whether you were a tailor or a shopkeeper or whatever, and you were going to put your children through university and they would be the success. Your son would be the doctor or the lawyer. Not maybe you're not your daughter. <laughs> she would marry a doctor. Um, but the you know the idea was that you were you were doing it for the next generation.
0: And eventually, Janet Daly becomes a columnist for the Southern yeah, Telegraph. Yeah, that was a so long the, route. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get to that, though, interesting listening to that story because from if you listen to woke people, they would say America's history is steeped in discrimination, racism. Oh yeah, that's true. It was true. this complete hellhole of a country. So why would anyone want to? Immigrate to America ah, in the well, first place. You see no, what I mean? So there's a contrast there between. Uh, and in America, it is a country of contrast and a country yes. of hip- hypocrisy, isn't it? Because at the same time as your Russian pogrom uh, kind of refugees, if you like, were coming to America, there was this huge discrimination.
1: Sure. I mean, the, the thing, slavery had been abolished long before my family came, but the point well, only is. Only 50 years. Yes, you know? yes. I mean, I, but the point is. The people who came. One of the, the real difficulties with racial politics in America and racial identity is that the only group of people who didn't come of their own choice were the people who were brought in chains from Africa, and it's absolutely true that slavery was the original sin, which America does not seem to be able to um, transcend. It's, it's horrendous, and American slavery was particularly brutal and murderous, and it was horrendous. And the fight not only to abolish slavery but then to abolish segregation i was very aware of that because as well as being active in the in the anti-vietnam war movement i was also participating in civil rights marches and civil rights demonstrations and the uh, abolishing what was called de facto segregation in the north as well as de jure segregation in the south was a very big deal and that was what the 60s was all about and the, uh, the there were so many points at which they thought they'd licked it, you know. Martin Luther King in his March on Washington, the passing of the Civil Rights Act under Lyndon Johnson, everybody thought, right, it's over now. And it's never over. It's, it's just heartbreaking. It's never over. Um, the disadvantage of the black communities, and they become more and more desperate and politically, politically almost psychotic because it's so hopeless. The despair of it, that is an inherent evil uh, in the American society which is very difficult to expunge, but you don't don't expunge it by tearing down statues of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, uh, you know, somehow you've got to come to terms with it and do something that actually remedies the existing problems rather than trying to rewrite the history.
0: But it's important to know or to mention that America has made huge progress since 1865, you know, and you talk about the civil rights movement. Huge leaps and bounds have, have, have happened in America for black people. And, yes. you know, we've got to obviously recognise that. The other thing about the civil rights movement that's interesting is that people today on the woke side would say that they are the new civil rights leaders. That they're, for example, with trans rights, they would they would argue, and human rights, they would argue, look, we're just simply furthering this fantastic cause from the 1960s. So perhaps you're just a simple reactionary, a kind of Bill Connor, uh, of, the 20, of sort of 2021.
1: <laughs> no, it's, an, it's imitative. Everybody imitra- Im- imitates the civil rights movement because it's such a great moral triumph, you know, the, the, the bravery and the, I mean, uh, you know, I was in a, was I in America? No, I think I'd come here already when there were civil rights workers murdered in Mississippi and the murderers got off because the local, court, the local courts, the local juries wouldn't convict. Uh, and it had, as a result, Murder, you know, in pursuit of a civil rights in in the civil rights context, had to become a federal crime because you couldn't get local juries to convict. I mean, it was horrendous. But the, what what is happening now is that every group that decides that it has a grudge or a disadvantage or is being treated unjustly takes that as a model, and it's completely inappropriate. You know, it's 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 a parody. In fact, it's a travesty of that. You know, people were being killed people were being lynched um the the kind of discrimination against the black minority in america was appalling and it's nothing like what it's being translated into by every protest movement now which is just trying to to kind of emulate it in the most ridiculous way.
0: Well the irony is is that Martin Luther King Jr famously said that people should be judged by the content of their character and yes. not the color of their skin. Yes. And now the same so-called civil rights movement or the woke movement yeah are doing exactly the opposite of that they're judging you they're judging people on the basis of white privilege for example where basically they're saying because of the color of your skin you hold inherent privileges privileges over other people and therefore you should be treated differently
1: that's just a version of original sin Uh, you can't choose not to be white and if you you know obviously you try to live your life by decent values and you try to be As it were, to make amends, you can't make amends for historical sins. I mean, in any other context, the idea that a child, for example, should be impugned because of the the crimes that his father had committed—can you imagine any other context in which that would seem just? If suppose your father was a mass murderer, does that mean that you should be incarcerated or that you should be cast out of society? It's not your fault, and it's certainly not your fault if three generations ago there was somebody connected with you in your society who. Made profits out of the slave trade. It's absurd, and it's it's a kind of um, a magical thinking, you know, that somehow you can extirpate the, the the crimes of previous generations by blaming people who are alive now and who are obviously, as individuals, blameless.
0: Of course, l- last year we saw the murder of George Floyd by the American police officer, and that caused international mm-hmm. outrage protests. Yeah. But also there was this idea that if you were white, you, son- you somehow held responsibility for the actions, not only in America, but in Britain, of someone thousands and yes. thousands of miles away. Yes. So it's not just about the ancestors, is it? No. You, can take, you can
1: be no. responsible for the crimes of others who, yes. who live... A- well, I mean, collective guilt of that kind is a very dangerous idea. To say that somehow, because you are of the same skin colour or the same you know, the same, in, in the same racial category as somebody who committed a heinous offense, how does that work? I mean, it's just disabling. It's morally disabling because you're responsible for everything. You're responsible for every crime, every terrible sort of social sin of anybody who happens to be of the same color as you. I mean, that, that makes life unlivable. It's impossible.
0: Understand these ideas, some people look to France and to Paris in the 1960s and these sort of postmodern ideas. Other people compare this to the Cultural Revolution under Mao, yeah. and where you ha- you know, we talk about collective guilt and yeah, punishing yeah, yeah. your ancestors. Mm-hmm. There's some comparisons there. Oh, yes, isn't there? absolutely. So, how, yeah. how do you understand wokeness?
1: Fundamentally, it's a neuroticism, it's and it's a fake religion. Uh, it's got all the sort of attributes of a religion, original sin. Collective, universal guilt, sins that can't be expiated, uh, the acceptance of your own moral responsibility for things that you never did—it seems to me to be have a psychodynamic quality about it. You know, there's something wrong, um, and it's a cultural neurosis, not not necessarily an individual one. But the comparison with the Cultural Revolution in China is very apt. This is its Maoist, and you know, a whole class has to be held responsible. For you know the, the the terrible things that happened in the Cultural Revolution, where anyone with a middle class education or a middle class job was forced to work in the mines or you know do sort of forced labor, that was extraordinary. But it, it it's very easy to get to a kind of psychotic breakdown if you allow rhetoric and ideology to run amok without being checked by any responsible decision making.
0: And has it only been enabled to run amok, as you say, because of the decline of religion and the decline of our sort of social values within society?
1: I think if decline of religion was the problem, it would have happened a long time ago in Britain. This is a very secular, almost irreligious society. But I think there is a need, a basic human need for certain kinds of credo, of something that gives life... A sense of moral force and principle, and it's very easy to fill that vacuum if you're unscrupulous or you're self-serving. Very easy, and Britain is usually pretty good at resisting. That's why it never went fascist; it never succumbed to the kinds of things that so many European countries succumbed to. And they were religious, you know. I mean, when when Italy was a was still quite a profoundly Catholic country when it went fascist. So it's not religion that protects you from that; it's more. I don't know what it is actually there's something about the national character of the british uh, which is skeptical inevitably skeptical uh, inevitably reasonable and humane and humorous and self-mocking and that saves you from an awful lot of sins and i don't i cannot see and i i see it still in britain very clearly i mean even especially during the pandemic during that all that social isolation the way people responded to it, the way they helped each other, the way they reacted to each other, the kind of conversations that people had in the streets, strangers talking to each other, that seems to be absolutely unbeatable. I mean, the the people who laughed their way through the Blitz, you know, it's still here, that character. It's what I love about the British. And they're so, so different from the contagious hysteria that seems to take, Roots so easily in America and in many European countries as well.
0: Let's go back to the divides in America. Mm -hmm. There are some people who say that America is so divided between the red states and the blue states that it should separate into two countries. Uh, You've got the kind of the coasts and then the sort of centre. What do you think about that idea? Is is America heading towards complete division?
1: No, not uh, officially. No, because the constitution will hold. It's amazing to say something nice about America that the constitution holds. You know, I mean, even, you know, when Trump had that horrific sort of invasion of the Capitol and was trying to get the, the object of it was to stop them doing the count, you know, the, the vice president Pence was having to do the count, the electoral college votes to install Biden as president. it, it the, the Constitution held. And there are enough people who... Most Americans actually are really pretty serious about the Constitution. It's, it is the national religion, the civic religion, and when it came to it, the orderly succession of one elected government to the next held, and the Constitution, this very peculiar sort of federal arrangement of all these very disparate states, that will hold. There might be some a lot of nastiness that'll go on in the interim, but you know, even under the most incredible circumstances it has held through Richard Nixon, you know, and sort of I mean it, it, there have been some pretty terrible things, uh, nothing quite as terrible as Donald Trump, I don't think. But I mean it, it, it's so huge, the country, and it has such a dispersed population. It's really quite difficult for anything to tear it apart. It it may seem like it when you look at the media coverage and it may seem like it when you look at the voting patterns, but when it actually comes to the stolid business of American life, it just goes on, uh, basically, under this constitutional rule of law.
0: January the 6th is a good example, so I'm glad you raised it, of how divided America is. I personally think that the word insurrection is going a bit too far. I think that these were a group of. Kind of crazed protesters who were going—they uh, were just dressed up as these nutters—and they kind of walked into this into Congress. I don't think that they were there to overthrow the government. I think—and—and and there has been some rhetoric from some politicians in America, including George W. Bush, that these people are comparable to the Taliban, that this was similar to 9/11. There's also these, this new idea from some Democrats of introducing domestic terror legislation to regulate their political enemies. And I think these are some really dangerous ideas and quite dangerous rhetoric. And it's certainly not the way to heal the divides in America, which is what Joe Biden promised he would do if he became president. How can America heal?
1: I have no idea, but I know that it will eventually happen just because everybody will become exhausted. And every generation displaces the next. In the 1950s, there was a famous Time magazine feature on the silent generation and how all these young people were growing up in America, in post war America, who had no interest in politics, who were conformist. All they wanted to do was get good jobs and wear a suit. And America was finished, you know, as a sort of politically active, politically conscious country. What happened next? The 60s. You know, uh, every decade, every generation wants to reverse or rebel against what went before. And there's, this is so ugly now that it has to immolate itself. But I think the January 6th thing, you have to understand, and this is again something probably difficult for British people to understand. The invasion of the Capitol was absolutely shocking. America, like most revolutionary republics, takes its monuments and things and its sacred buildings very, very seriously. There's nothing that could compare. If we had an invasion of the Houses of Co- House of Commons, it wouldn't be anything like as shocking as that. The the Capitol, which is the home of the you know Houses of Congress, which is, if anything is more sacred than the presidency. It has more power than the presidency, actually. To see it invaded by hordes of, well, as you say, these sort of ludicrous, terrifyingly ludicrous people, I can understand why people went overboard in describing the significance of it. I have a good friend in America who is a Republican and who was a supporter of Trump and who is a very educated, erudite guy. And I emailed him on that night at the height of that horror show and said, Please tell me that you're appalled by these scenes. Otherwise, we're on different planets. Uh, And he, I would tell you what his reply was, but it was less than, um, you know, sort of uh, robust. And I can't tell you how shocking that is in America. There's no equivalent because Britain doesn't have these sacred monuments. The, if you remember, there was a, a movement called Fathers for Justice in this country, which was doing all kinds of silly pranks. And w- At one point, they climbed up into the House of Commons onto a balcony and the police spent hours gently talking them down and everything. In America, they tried the same thing. and they, I think it was the Jefferson Memorial that they occupied. A SWAT team went in and bang, they were out like that. No messing because America regards, it's it's practically like the Vatican, you know, it regards those monuments to its history as absolutely sacred. But a memorial is one thing, the Jefferson Memorial, but the Capitol building, I mean, the, that, I can understand why people became deranged when they responded to that.
0: We don't have enough time to talk about the reaction, but I do think it's interesting because after Great crises, governments tend to, I think, overreach. And, you know, 9 11 is a good example of that, where mm. they passed all this legislation that's still there today. And yes. it's meant to be temporary legislation to tackle foreign terrorist threats. And now some Democrats are talking about the domestic threat. And I think there is a danger there. But anyway, look, I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you so much, <laughs> Janet, for joining <laughs> us. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.